Hello and welcome to Unramblings, a podcast about stories and storytelling. I'm Mark. And I'm Charlene. And we're back! We've been working some things out. We're coming to you from currently the inside of our closet. We're hoping that this is going to be a slightly better sound quality in here, so we'll see how that goes. We're also recording for the first time on my new laptop, so hopefully that will also help. Maybe? We'll see. And not the antique refurbished computer that I got from a friend for free. Years. Or for helping them move. Years ago. Like two years. Two is multiple. Technically true. If you tap the microphone stand with your foot, that's going to cause problems. I know. I'll try not to. It's you that will have to try and edit them out. I know. Um, there has been a little bit of time since our last episode. It's been uh, an interesting time for everyone with the virus continuing to go on. Uh, we're recording this in late May. Yeah. How did where, that even happen? I where think. did May go? Yeah. Um, Which is sort of the crux of why we haven't been recording. Um, yeah. There have been a lot of adjustments happening, and uh, we're sorry. We will try to be more consistent. Although we might be switching to every other week. Yeah, we might be switching to every other week. We'll see. Um, my, my work was very crazy for a while and now my, my work isn't. So I I have a lot more free time in theory. Uh, we'll see whether that translates and whether that lasts because for all I know I'll get a phone call tomorrow and suddenly I won't have more free time. It's an exciting time for everyone. Yeah, so point being we're trying to not commit to once a week. Uh, we're trying to commit to every other week. If we are able to do more than that, then that'll be awesome. And we are trying to think of maybe some other ways to um, engage on storytelling discussions in our off weeks in a way that maybe takes less time. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Just keep an eye on our Facebook page and we'll keep you posted. So with everything going crazy, we had replanned our schedule a little bit um, to do some lighter topics in general. Um, we've been doing a few of those. Uh, this one is one off of our original schedule, and it's a really light, fun one. It's uh, Glengarry Glen Ross, the adaptation from the David Mamet play. For, for people unfamiliar with British humor, that was a joke. It's not light or cheerful at all. Um... It is if you're a sociopath. Right. Which is statistically a pretty small proportion of the population. So. I mean, you never know. It could be a statistically relevant portion of our listenership audience. Maybe. I think that's unlikely, though. We will fairly obviously be spoiling the entirety of the play slash film. We'll get into why I'm just saying slash there later. Uh, let's see. Brief summary of work. Oh, this is my job, is it? Why is this one my job? Yes, you've, you read the summary recently. You didn't expect me to have a logical reason, did you? <laughs> so Glengarry Glen Ross is a play that follows a group of salesmen slash conmen as they try to sell parcels of land that uh, don't really have a huge amount of worth to people who don't really have a lot of money. So in the film version, the conceit is that at the start, they are in a position where there's a sales competition going on and the person who is highest in the sales will get a Cadillac, but the people who are the bottom two in the of the four salesmen will get fired. This puts them into a fairly desperate position, so it goes on as they either A, go out and try and make sales, or B, decide to rob the office. The second act takes place the following morning, and oh my god, the office has been robbed. There are the prime Glengarry leads that they need, because they're the information on people that might actually be interested in buying things, rather than the old leads of people who they know they can't sell to because they failed before. There's a detective who is then interviewing each of them as they go through, and it sort of all comes apart, and one of them is outed as having robbed the office. And that's that's really the play. It's just a slow descent into depression. Care to refute any of that? No. Okay. This one was definitely my choice. I'm a fan of it, but uh, 
It is not a cheerful thing, and I don't know if Shannon has quite forgiven me for making her watch it yet. Nope, she's still not speaking to me. <laughs> cool. That's going to make the podcast hard. There are many other films I would probably have enjoyed watching more. But are they as good as social commentary? I mean, I think that we will probably have a nice ranty discussion about it. <laughs> okay. So to get a little bit into the meat of this, we do want to mention that this was originally a play by Mamet, who then wrote the screenplay to adapt it into a film. Charlotte has only seen the film, I've seen the film and read the play. There is very little in the way of differences between the two. There are a couple of sort of key scenes or details that we'll mention, but otherwise they're fairly interchangeable. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about some of the things that are relevant to it being an adaptation when we get into more of the storytelling elements and devices used to push the ideas along. Okay, so let's get into it. So if uh, people who have seen the play or the film might be surprised, but I think we're going to start off by talking about capitalism. Is, is that right? Yes. Okay, we, we found some threads on capitalism in this then. In in that it's pretty much what the entire movie is about. Yes. You, we, yes, we did. Okay, okay. It, it is possible that the entire movie is just a statement on that slash masculinity. Yeah. Um. So if you were, you know, desperate to hear some more of us talking about masculinity and capitalism, you will not be disappointed. And if you didn't, well, maybe the next one will be better. Yeah. The, the next one, I think I know what the next one's going to be. And that's definitely going to be very different. It'll be very strange and very different. What's the next one? I think we're probably going to do Legion next. Yeah, probably. I think after that we might end up doing Mistborn, at which point yeah, we might be back, back onto to, the Then we're going to be back onto capitalism. <laughs> yeah. And how we've recreated feudalism. Why did we do that? We did, I don't know, but we did. Yeah. Anyway. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about um, this sort of central item that's in the play that I don't know enough about sales of this type to know whether it's something entirely invented by Mehmet or if it's a real thing. But this concept of the leads. In the film you get this sort of thing of Alec Baldwin holding up this nice little tied up with a ribbon, the leads as this spectacular thing. And they're used as a plot device within it of like, this is the thing you have to have to be successful. It's interesting because that Alec Baldwin scene was not in the original play. Mamet wrote that purely for the film and wrote it literally for Alec Baldwin to play that part. And it was partially done as a way to explain what the leads were, because some people had found it confusing in the play version. It was like, what, what are these leads things? So that's really just sort of this big exposition at the start to be like, okay, these things, these are important. That's, that's what you need to know. Important. Remember this. So, but you're set up with this structure where Williamson, the office manager, played by Kevin Spacey, who is not in any way problematic. <laughs> Again, British humour. Yes, that's probably not something I want to be misinterpreted on, is it? No. <laughs> But he's handed these leads and goes and locks them away in his safe and has complete control over these things that the salesmen are desperate to get hold of for their job. And there seems to be this strong impression that they're being given shitty leads that you can't do anything with. And to get the good ones, you have to make a sale that's worthy of that, which you can't do because you don't have the good leads. Because Or at least it's incredibly difficult for you to. You're very unlikely to, and you really have to get lucky to do that. And it's interesting because I, I want to point out that like at the beginning, it kind of sounds like the people who haven't been doing as well are just like whining, and it's sour grapes at the people who are more successful or more skilled or whatever, more charismatic and better at being salesmen. But 
at the end, you do actually find out that the people who were saying, you keep giving me crap that you know I can't do anything with are actually right. Because because Williamson actually confesses to uh, Shelley Levine at the end that he intentionally gave him bad leads that he knew were people who just like talking to salespeople and didn't have the money to make the purchases that they are trying to convince these people to make. And so it's not it, it like they really do kind of make you turn against these desperate men at the beginning and like think that they're just, you know, bitching and moaning and they just need to suck it up and, you know, get better at their jobs or get into a different line of work or something. But they're right. The system actually, the system in the body of Williamson is actually deciding who actually gets a chance. And I do think that there's something very uh, appropriate with that in terms of in our society, that is the form of opportunity and like access to things. And there's a lot of chance and there's a lot of who you know and who likes you or who doesn't like you that plays a huge role in whether you get the time of day and the tools that you need to be successful or to be noticed for the things that you can bring. Yeah, I think it's no mistake that Williamson or Kevin Spacey in this case, is by far the youngest member of that cast. Maybe not by far at that point. He certainly looks younger, but has this power over these people who have been out walking the streets for a long time. I think it's Levine makes some comment about Williamson is only where he is because someone know he knows knows Mitchum Murray or something. I think he's like someone's nephew, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that sort of nepotism that he's he's in there and he's got the power, not because he's good at his job, not because he knows anything about the business. It's demonstrated later that he isn't good at those things or doesn't have that knowledge base, but is there because of luck and who he was born to. Right. I think you you were talking about, like, oh, they just need to get better at what they do. Well, that's sort of the impression at the beginning of just some of them are better at it than others, and the ones who suck are just shitty, like, sore losers, basically. And I think that that's shown really well through Roma's Mm -hmm. storyline. At the start with the sales meeting, all the salesmen are supposed to be there to listen to Alec Baldwin talk about the competition and everything. Roma doesn't even bother showing up to this. He's the most successful person on the sales team at its face. He instead is staying in this bar across the street and talking to a stranger. And he he doesn't go in there and say, hey, I want to sell you some land. He sits there and talks to him about his own particular brand of philosophy that is something I'm sure we can get into later. And makes a connection with the guy that leads up to him then making a sale through that. And it seems as though when you compare it to like Levine going out and trying to charm everyone, you're sort of shown this like, well, Al Pacino's just got this... Al Pacino, Roma, has got this something... um, Charisma. Yeah, that allows him to be really good at his job, and he's great at it. But then we see it all fall apart the next day. He had ignored leads. He had gone and found someone to talk to himself rather than setting up a lead. But he'd still try to sell money to someone who didn't need what was being sold and didn't really have the money to to buy it. And it ends up being Renee. So it doesn't matter that he might be the best salesman in the world who really understands people without these Glengarry leads or the Glen Ross leads, then um, he still ends up being SOL. Partially because Williamson helps screw it up for him. Yeah. But the only way that he was able to be starting to pull that back together and stop that sale from falling through was through bold-faced lying and like trying to just confuse the client into going, oh, okay, yeah, no, I guess that is three business days, and it's not. Mm-hmm. But I think that works as an interesting parallel to Levine's side of things, where he's shown as being sort of bumbling and 
a little bit snivelly and desperate. And he eventually makes a sale, and it falls through, and it's a very similar reason that he sold something to someone who didn't have money to pay for it. Yeah. The whole thing, it's very much like an entirely pointless enterprise. Like, nobody needs this service. It is a made-up enterprise to funnel money from people who already don't have enough money to people who don't actually need more money. You know, this Mitch and Murray or whoever, who we never see, I think, very intentionally, who are the ones really benefiting from these scams. They are, you know, alluded to as living the high life and being people that Shelley Levine knew when he was more prominent in the business. And and I, I think that's an important in that, like, again, paralleling our society, a, there are a lot of industries, quote unquote, especially like in the financial sector and like bureaucracy and things like that, that are not actually meaningful to anyone's like day-to-day quality of life. And it's part, that's a big part of, I think, people's growing disenchantment and disillusionment with their jobs and feeling like what they do is pointless because they know that it is. For a while, I worked for a market research company, and literally my job was like collecting market research data that I knew full well was to help already multi-million dollar businesses appeal to the market they pretty much already had more effectively. So making already really wealthy people and corporations even wealthier. And I've got to tell you, that's not a particularly fulfilling line of work, at least not for me. And I I don't think I'm alone in that. I think a lot of people have decided either to leave stuff like that to try and find some work that's meaningful or have concluded that they're never going to feel meaningfully fulfilled through their work and have to find it through other means. But this isn't exactly that kind of sector. You know, if nobody were allowed to sell prospective shares in Florida plots that no one cared about people would still eat and have electricity and go to school and learn things and (laughs) invent things. And we would still have a society. People's quality of life would not be diminished by the lack of that industry. Right. I I know I've just said that in a much longer way, but... Well, no, I think you illustrate it well. And I think that the whole Mitch and Murray and Jerry Graff thing is interesting. The competitor Jerry Graff? Uh, Yeah. Who who had been, I think, working for Mitch and Murray and went off and set up his own business. Because you have these these two sides of the Mitch and Murray thing is that I think Romer and Levine both are annoyed with Mitch and Murray, but are in a position of, like, they respect them and sort of want to be in that position themselves. Like, that's something they're aspiring to, and through hard work they can try and get there. And then you have the other two salesmen, Moss and Aronau, who are having a very different conversation where they're like, Effect- I think the phrase, fuck Mitch and Murray, comes up, mm-hmm. because they're saying, okay, but these guys are buying these leads that we may or may not get, and then when we go out and bust our asses... They they take ninety percent of what we set make. Yeah, that's not reasonable. And there's this idea of oh, we can go across the street to Jerry Graff. Would things be different over there? Maybe he'd been on the streets more recently, or it might just be the same situation. But it's that sort of helpless feeling, trapped and just looking for yeah a way out where you can make a move in some way. Sure, and where you can feel like you're actually able to take part in the gains you're creating. 
and I think that, again, uh, circles back to what I think I had initially been trying to say before I got derailed. I derailed myself um, when I was saying, like, you don't ever see Mitch and Murray. And I think that's important because we don't really see the people and, like, the people at the top of corporations and large businesses who end up benefiting from, you know, from not raising payroll, who end up benefiting, um, taking home million dollar bonuses and stuff like that when they sell stock options and or do stock buybacks with the government bailout money that their business gets. The people who benefit from all of the tax loopholes that they lobby to get past. The people on the front line of the business don't share in any of the wealth that's generated by those practices. They just end up having the same existence that's as meager as the business possibly can make it without losing the staff they need to actually get the work done. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's. That's interesting. I mean, um, in part, like, you never hear Williamson complain about his lot, but you also never see any of them talk about going anywhere else. Like, as in doing something else. Like another job? Yeah. Um, obviously, they do talk about going to Jerry Graff, but that's... But that's still within the same business. Yeah, and it, there's no there's no room in their minds to say, I'm going to go somewhere else. And I mean, I, I could suggest that that's because this isn't a play about... People who sell meaningless investments, it's a play about the capitalist structure that we're in Mm -hmm. and whether that works or not. Mm -hmm. And who does that work for? I think it's a commentary on the lack of social and economic mobility in the United States and the UK for that matter, just like we were talking about with Steven Universe. I know that's a really weird comparison, like, relationship there, but it's true. And, like, if you look in the show notes for the second Steven Universe episode where we talk about the, like, macro scale issues that are very subtly confronted in that show, you do see in that social structure of the diamond hierarchy this idea of a very static class system, and it's the same thing here. You can't just decide to not be on the bottom. And we tell our citizens that they can because it's hope and it's an incentive to keep working to line the man's pockets, like pretty literally. It's the modern day, like where feudalism had, oh, your afterlife will be so much better. We have, oh, but you might make it and, you know, might break through and become a multimillionaire sometime. So it, you know, it behooves you to do everything you can to make the life of a millionaire great so that when you're a billionaire, it's great for you. You don't want to tax billionaires because then when you're a billionaire, you'll have to pay tax. Right. When the fact is that economic and social mobility have been incredibly low the past few decades in this country. And again, you can look at some of those. We can link some of the same stuff in the show notes here, too. But I think it's it's really about that. The point is not that it sucks being a salesman. Yeah. I think we're going to fairly quickly move on to talking about how they achieve some of the stuff that we're talking about in those messaging. I think we do want to talk a little bit about corruption, though, mm-hmm. and how that's represented in the film. You made some good points about that before when we were talking. Well, when we were talking earlier, like, on this recording, and I was saying, you know, we do find out that it's not that the people who haven't been performing as well, you know, just aren't as good or whatever, like, that they're right that Williamson has been engaging in really preferential treatment, and it's the opposite of preferential treatment. Whatever that is, giving people he likes good leads or better leads and giving the people he doesn't like the shitty ones that he knows are, you know, worthless. And so that's definitely corruption in terms of 
you're not really giving everyone a fair chance. You are deciding to benefit the people that you like. Okay. We've probably edited most of it out, but we are joined by one of our cats who is refusing to settle, so if there's weird purring, meowing, or odd scuffling noises in the background, we're sorry. But if we kick him out, he'll just try and eat the bottom of the door, so... So we talked a decent amount about capitalism and corruption. I kind of want to just sort of take a look at how the story is structured to set that up, because... A lot of the things that we talk about, there's this subtext things, where it's like, ah, well, if you see this as a representation of this, Mumet is not subtle in this. It's very much on the nose with it. And I mean, it's it's kind of like uh, when you... Have you read 1984? Yes. When you get two thirds of the way through the book and it just takes 50 pages off to just be a political manifesto for 50 pages. It's been a while since I've read it, but yeah. He's a little bit more subtle than that. But it is very much a, he sets it up so that you can be brought into the thing, and then he makes his statement. Sure. You mentioned that at the start it seems like they're being very whiny, perhaps unjustifiably. And I think that that's really brought in really well with the Alec Baldwin speech at the start, where he's saying, no, coffee is for winners. Mm-hmm. you got to always be closing, mm-hmm. um, which I definitely had a, a co-manager at my store unironically say, always be closing to me a few weeks ago. and. Um, they have not seen like Gary Glamorous, so that's that's fun. Um, I told them to go and watch it, and I kind of hope they didn't. Where was I going with this? It's not subtextual. It's very obvious. Right. He sets it up, and then he rants about capitalism. We'll get into Roma's speech later, but he ties success and capitalism into this idea of masculinity very strongly, a very toxic masculinity idea. And when I say that he's not subtle, the film version has Alec Baldwin do his speech and then explain that you've got to have brass balls with prop brass balls. It's a whole thing. Yeah, and I do want to point out again that this is equating like financial success being a requirement for what we consider like basic everyday things like coffee, um, which I know at different points in history has been like more of a luxury good. And um, but it wasn't the early nineties. In the nineteen eighties, when this play was written, and in the early ni- in the nineties, when this movie was made and that scene was added. Coffee is like one of those everyday items that people have as like a normal part of their day. Not everybody I know, but but this is saying like even the littlest good things in life are only reserved for people who are driving the the currency machine, um, generating wealth for their capitalist overlords, basically. Which is unfortunately a horribly accurate picture of like the way a lot of people think of like if you're not working and generating revenue through the accepted through financial compensation modes of work, then you're not a worthwhile member of society who, and you don't deserve to have access to things like food and shelter and water and healthcare and things like that. Like, I keep seeing on Facebook this thing during the coronavirus pandemic of like, instead of, um, I think instead of stimulus checks or something, we should have like a payroll something or other so that only workers are rewarded and not freeloaders. And so I was just like, wow, okay. And I did comment that that would leave a lot of people who have lost their jobs because of the coronavirus with, you know, nothing, not to mention people who can't work. Yeah, it's uh, um, the the other side of that one is the one I've seen where it's people saying, oh, you know, people are getting more money for sitting at home because they're on unemployment at the moment than they are than the people who are going in and working and taking this as a problem with the people who have lost their jobs or currently can't work is because 
all these other people being well. The other people should be being paid more, but the problem isn't the people who are on it on unemployment. The problem is the structures that mean that the grocery store doesn't pay their workers properly. Right. The fact that there isn't a mandated living wage um, or a you know, minimum standard of living implemented in this country and in a lot of other places. That's the actual problem. The fact that we are willing to let people starve, not because we don't have enough food, but because we just don't want to make sure they have it. Same thing with housing. Let let people be homeless, even though there are empty homes, just because people are setting all of these like achievement bars in front of people, regardless of whether they're capable of overcoming them or not. The more direct analogue to the coffee thing might be the issue people have with food stamps mm-hmm. where people are like, oh, you know, they're on food stamps but they're buying a steak with them. And it's like, yeah, okay, they're buying a steak. Maybe it's their birthday. Maybe they're allowed to have nice things even if they're on food stamps. Mm-hmm. And you get people who are like yank- yanking things out of people's carts because they don't think they should be buying with this, that, and the other. Yeah. So, the whole thing. Anyway. But I do think that scene just sort of illustrates that, you know, idea that you have to earn everything, even stuff that should be considered a part of human dignity. Yeah. Like the fact that in the movie, at least, Shelley Levine is trying to take care of like a child who's in the hospital. And yeah. nobody seems to care about that when it comes to his job security. But you were talking about the subtext and the rant, and it's not subtle with it. But yeah, so that speech is where we're brought into it with this these people have got to go out and make money. That's just their jobs. What are they doing? Sort of thing. Like, why are you not all winners? Mm-hmm. In quotes. And they're all kind of indignant about it. Is Alec Baldwin's character an asshole? Yes. Are we supposed to... Who Who are we supposed to side with there? Mm-hmm. I think that you're right that it does set them up as like they're going, well, we can't do anything. We've got no good leads. They're just being kind of whiny. Mm-hmm. But then it does take the it does take us on a journey through with Levine. You see him go out and do his damnedest to make a sale, and mm-hmm. you see that like these people aren't actually interested. And then does make a sale, but to people who don't have any money. And then you have the Moss and Aranel story. I really hope I'm getting that name right. Don't I have? Where they go out and try and make a sale. We don't see it. We just hear their report of it, but it doesn't seem to go well. But you can see that they're not. Like, there's a lot of whining, especially from Moss, but there's a lot of more critique, perhaps more from Aranel, on how the system that they're working within doesn't work for anyone. Right. And it is really interesting, because that's the only part of the entire movie where it's actually explicitly acknowledged that what they're doing is unethical, not just hard or stupid like that it they're actually defrauding people or like or at least misleading people into making pretty shitty investments um like it might be legal but it's still unethical is essentially and i'm not even really clear on the legality of it like it sounds like it's questionably legal well there's the point at the end where uh roma's client link is mm-hmm. like oh yeah my wife wants to call like the state attorney and Everyone was like, no, 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 we don't, we don't need to do that. No need to. So yeah, the legality is probably kind of muddy there. Yeah. Say more about it. Well, because Aranow is the one who says, like, it's not right to the clients. Yeah. During that conversation with Moss, where Moss is ranting about how it's a dead end and it's not fair to them for them to have their feet held to the fire at this, like, where they have to make a sale today or they lose their jobs. And he's complaining about that. It's like, he's doing the, well, what about me? And what about us? And 
Aaron out is like, yeah, nobody's winning here. This is yeah. bad for absolutely everyone this business touches, except maybe, except for whoever is getting the money funneled to the top. But yeah, it's bad for us and it's bad for our clients. And M- Moss has like, has sort of like, well, yeah, sure, the clients, but back to us. Yeah, very much. Like he's, he does not care. And there, I think there's a certain amount of mental gymnastics that you have to do if you're in a job like that. And yeah. it's not unlike the mental gymnastics that we, including us, do when we decide to eat meat, when we know that other animals are alive and sentient and feel pain and compassion and bond with other creatures and live lives of suffering and industrial farming. And I'm not trying to like make everyone be vegan, but I'm also not not trying to make people at least be aware of that and help and maybe let those awarenesses maybe influence some of your habits. But we all engage in a lot of self-deception to yeah. do things that we know on some level are wrong. And I think it does take a certain amount of fortitude to acknowledge that you're doing something that's harming other people. And that's what he does. And he's the only one who does that. And it's why, while I don't like anybody, I find him the most likable because he at least acknowledges that he's doing something that's not ethical. Yeah. It's interesting that you don't see his and Moss's sale because he also always seems slightly confused by what's going on around him. And I'd be interested to see how he, like, would be written as a salesman in that role. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I think his catchphrase is, wait, what? <laughs> Maybe he's just one of the ones Williamson likes. Yeah, there we go. So by the time we get to the end of the film, though, a lot of that sort of whininess is removed. You have both Roma and Levine coming in triumphant in their own ways. Roma's coming in and going, hey, like, you know, I'm I'm at the top of the board, I, I win a Cadillac. Mm-hmm. And Levine's coming in and saying, like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm up on top of the world. Roma's going, hey, we should work together, because we're, we're both so great at this. And you do see them work together on a little bit trying to defraud someone. <laughs> and they do work well together. Levine is not the incompetent person he's been made out to be. He can pick up on what's being laid down. He can do his con man bit, which I think removes a lot of the idea of them as like just not trying or just being bad. They they don't don't just need to get good. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you get this sort of unmasking of Williamson as not just like a symbol of power, but as a full on antagonist in the play. Like he, he is the enemy in the play. He holds all the power and has is deliberately fucking people over. Yeah. And I do think that Kevin Spacey plays a really good creepy asshole and that it's become very clear as to why it doesn't apparently take a whole lot of effort on his part to do that. All of the scenes that include him are very uncomfortable. Um, Not like all those comfortable scenes. Well, yeah. But like extra uncomfortable, there's like an extra sleaze to his performance. Um, There's an oiliness and a, a grossness there, you know? Yeah. Well, he's, he does play the role very well, but I mean, he's a stand-in, like, he's Mitch and Murray's errand boy, mm-hmm. but he's the symbol of them and of this sort of capitalist power. Mm-hmm. So it, it's interesting the way that it lulls you in to, I think there are a lot of people who go into this and go, oh yeah, Alec Baldwin's right. He He's loud and proud and he's got his prop balls. And he's clearly doing something right because he has all this money and, like, this Rolex or whatever. Yeah, his watch costs so much money. Uh Like, did you hear how much money his watch costs? Yeah. Um, And then taking people on a journey from that point through to a point where they can see that balance be completely shifted. Mm -hmm. And to the point where when Levine is caught and defeated at the end, it's sad. 
And it really just, it does, I think, show the point being that, like, the whole thing is rigged, basically. Like, they don't have what they need to succeed because this enterprise isn't successful. Yeah. It's just not. It's not built to be successful for the person on the bottom. Yeah. And, I mean, you can, we can believe that you can trick your way in, like, by being a terrible person to people like James Link. You can get yourself $84,000 on the board, mm-hmm. um, remembering that Roma's taking away maybe 10% of that. Right. Um, and he is the most successful person there. But if the person handing out goods isn't on your side at all, then even that becomes impossible to you. Yeah. I mean, Levine comes in triumphantly explaining how he sold the Nyborgs $80,000 worth of units. They can't afford that. He knows they can't afford that on some level. Like, if they had the money, they shouldn't be spending it on an investment property that's worth nothing. So, while we feel sympathetic towards Levine for some reasons, what he's doing is not good. It's just what he has to do to look out for number one. Or at least it's the only way he knows how to do that. Because, like, he's older, he's probably near retirement age, if not past it, and has been doing this for so long and he doesn't really, I think, see any other option for a job or career at this point and has a daughter in the hospital, at least in the movie, not in the play. Yeah, and um, that, that is worth noting that that was something that was added into the movie to make him a more sympathetic character, was these phone calls with his with the hospital about the fact that his daughter's in the hospital and he needs the money for his daughter because the American health industry is a thing and it's terrible and has been terrible since the 90s at least. Right. So it's, I think that circles back again to that feeling trapped. Like you can't just decide to do something that is better because it's not about the role of salesperson in a shitty, fraudulent enterprise. It's about the role of being a peon in this larger class system. And you can't just decide to do a higher class job. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Because there are a whole lot of There's a whole lot of gatekeeping that keeps people from doing that, like college and higher education than college and knowing people who know people who hire in more well-paying roles, which involves already being connected to wealthier people than people in higher strata than yourself, etc. So, yeah, I I think that kind of just ties right back to that. Yeah. Well, um, is there more you want to say about capitalism in particular, or have we sort of drained that well? I mean, I think it's all pretty on the surface. Like, you know, it's a very thinly veiled allegory, basically stating that capitalism sucks for the people on the bottom and puts a lot of people in positions where they have to do things that they don't want to do or don't think are right or have no option to to advance in society and, like, you know, achieve the American dream unless they already have some privilege in the form of luck or connections. Yeah. I think that that it's a nice moment at the end of the film. Not not a nice moment, but a nice moment for comment on capitalism and stuff, is um, that the place has been robbed and completely turned over. And A, like everyone's concern is primarily about money and not what's happened and is everyone okay or anything. But they took the phones from the desks and as they're doing their conversations and everything... Right. New phones are being plugged in. Right yeah. towards the end, like, there, there's a guy going around plugging in new phones, and, like, Roma does not acknowledge the guy plugging in the phones at all, 
and then just like picks up the phone and starts making calls again. Aranel is there make, picking up the phone, making calls again. Like it ends on a shot of Aranel making those calls. Meanwhile, like there's a detective in the next room interviewing everyone, and there's just like a mess everywhere. But it's it's just right back to work straight away. Mm-hmm. No recovery time, no. nothing. And that's interesting right now yeah. when we are experiencing a massive social disruption. And despite the fact that the dust has very much not yet settled, and we don't know all of the details about, like, maybe this was someone who had a grudge against someone who worked at the business. They don't know. They haven't figured it out yet. Um, so it could be dangerous for any of them to be there. But nobody has done that work yet, and they still, but they're like, nope, you better get back to work making us money. Yeah, us yeah. being my, Mitch and Murray, or whoever is at the top of your own particular corporate behemoth <laughs> should very much be a like no everyone just sort of take the day off we'll get this tidied up we'll work out what's going on and we'll get back to it in the future like yeah so i did want to like i know that it's partially just like our, our tropes at this point but uh it's a day from a met play and i think we would be remiss not to at least mention gender for a moment mm-hmm. we've talked a little bit about alec baldwin already and there is the majority of roma's lines in act one are a We'll, we'll generously call it a philosophical discussion with Link. It's very much one-sided, and it is largely him talking about a general sexual conquest and how great it feels to go to the bathroom sometimes, which is sort of set up as how he connects with Link and why he's successful. But I think it also is how he's keeping Link off balance and mm. in a position where Link feels that Roma is cooler than him basically you know what i mean yeah it's like oh this guy is so confident he's willing to talk to me a relative stranger about sex and really intimate things and like it's just so confident and like he does he has no uh shyness at all and like a lot of people do equate confidence with success and competence um, and so it's like, oh, well, you're so confident. You must know what you're doing. I should trust you. And I think that's a big part of it. It's a big part of his bluff is that he is going so deep with this dude he does not know. Yeah. And But it also makes Link a little bit uncomfortable. And that puts him in this sort of subservient like, role trying to, like, prove he's cool to Roma. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's very fair. So I did just want to mention on that. So what were you, you were you trying to kind of angle it like it might be sort of a like a masculine solidarity thing or no no just okay. like the fact that like I think that Roma is presented as successful in the play and I I think that's very much tied to masculine symbolism sure in that he does talk about like sexual conquest and things like that like yeah. nobody else does nobody else has a need to mm-hmm. but he is written to talk about that yeah um, that's true. So, uh, what do you think about the women in the play? Well, I think that it's notable that there aren't any. Right! And all of the allusions to women are in, like, subservient roles where they're being exploited by somebody else. Yeah. So, the two that immediately come, except for Shelley's daughter, who's in the hospital, not necessarily, well, yes, being exploited by the American healthcare system. There you go. And exploited um, by Levine for sympathy to some extent. Though. Yes, a little bit. I, I mean, or by the Met to give Levine sympathy. Sure, but I don't, I, yeah, I don't get the impression that Levine is, like, I, I get the impression that that's genuine, like, yes. concern. But Levine's fake telemarketer persona voice includes frequent references uh, to the imaginary Grace, his 
imaginary secretary, which is meant to build him up in the minds of his clients to seem more professional and accomplished and established than he is. Oh yes, Grace, I'm I'm heading I'm heading out of town. I'll need ten thousand dollars just in spending cash. No, sorry, what were you saying? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's so this is this imaginary woman who's being made up to make this man look better, more successful, successful enough to be paying a secretary. And so there's that. There's Grace. And I think it's notable that that is a female person because it's a predominantly female role, particularly in the 80s of, you know, your phone answering role of your assistant, your secretary or whatever the role was going to be called, front desk clerk. But it doesn't have to be. Anyone can do that. And then the other one is the imaginary wives of all the clients because it very much seems like all of the leads are men and it's reiterated that you have to get the client and their wife to sign at the same time um, or the deal won't go through. I guess it because this is a very like tenuously legal enterprise, it's not legal. If it can be challenged, it can be overturned. They can get the deal thrown out. Uh, the clients can if they weren't both present and signed. Yeah. And so when Levine comes in all triumphant, he's part of his, you know, his war story of having gotten this great sale is eating the wife's cake. And that comes up several times and it's very much this like I'm exploiting this woman's need for approval and and validating, you know, her role as this um homemaker, I guess. You know, and this is how welcome I am in this home. This is how close I was able to ingratiate myself into this family circle of trust kind of a thing, if that makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, so it's always in this context of this is a person we have to, you know, trick basically into signing this document so that we can make a ton of money off of their ignorance or gullibility. Yeah. Well, I think the, um, the one that you haven't mentioned that's important is the client that Levine goes to see. And we see that he's spoken with the wife before, gets there, and it's the husband instead. The wife isn't there. The wife has been sounded interested. And the husband is like, oh, God, she's been talking to these salesmen again. And he's like, no, we're not interested and shuts him down. And it's very much presented as like the wife is the weak link that Levine can get in on. Mm -hmm. Which is very interesting because for Levine, the wife is the weak, weak link whose his charm works well on. But with Roma, it's the opposite. Yeah. His charm works very well with other men, it would appear, and it's the wives who then see that their husbands are trying to make this big financial investment who are looking at it, like, with Link's wife in particular, who's like, no, you need to get out of this. You need to take back this agreement because we're not spending our money this way. And Roma's response is, this is a great quality in a wife that she's that she's fiscally conscious and like, you know, cautious. And this is a thing that wives do. They're, they, they spook, you know, they're, they're more conservative financially and they don't want to take these risks. And that's probably a part of why you married her, etc. So for Roma, he's trying to get at the man who he can impress with his manliness and make look up to him and like feel camaraderie with and get the husband to convince his wife to go along with it. Which is interesting. Yeah. Neither of those paint terribly flattering views of women. They do not. You are correct. <laughs> which uh, which is one of the big criticisms about Mehmet. He is known for not being able to write women. A lot of his plays don't have any. Mm -hmm. um, and 
I think he was challenged, or maybe there was a bet at one point, I forget the exact story, and he did write a play about a couple of lesbians, potentially as a way to prove that he could or that he couldn't. I'm not sure. It turns out he can't. (laughs) Fair enough. While we are talking about unflattering portrayals in this film, there's also some very flagrant, casual, anti-Indian racism, like like India, not Native American, but um, from India, Indian where there are several references made to people from India or of in- from Indian families not being viable targets for this scam. And I don't know that that's really an insult, honestly. Like, it's basically like these are people who are not going to be interested in what we're trying to sell them. But there's also some reference to them not using banks, like hiding their money in a mattress or something like that. So it's very weird. But like, they're very casual and confident like assertions where they're like you know if you get a lead that has the name patel like it's worthless those people are never going to buy from you and i'm not sure where i land on it because it's clearly shitty like the way that it's done like but is it shitty as a commentary on like white people having these racist stereotypes about people because it definitely is that but whether that's intentionally like a thing you know, like, I'm not sure where David Amet's going with this. Like, if he's criticizing the tendency for people to have those kinds of shitty stereotypes, or if it's just that David Mamet carries this shitty shitty, uh, stereotypes. But honestly, I feel like the idea that this group of people is not falling for your bullshit, not that, you know, I know positive stereotypes are still stereotypes, but I don't know. I don't know how to feel about it. It, I mean, I know I felt very uncomfortable. I'll say that. Yes. Um, um, I don't know where he stands. I think that within the uh, scope of the, this film and this play, I, I certainly read it as a, a another aspect of the way that they're unlikable. That's what I think it is, too, but I'm not certain, you know? I think probably the biggest question I would have for trying to work out whether whether it's an intentional choice to make these people look less good is whether Aranel says it at any point. Hmm. Because I think he is probably the closest that we get to someone that we're supposed to like in any regard. Mm-hmm. But Aronel's an interesting character because he, as you point out, questions the morality of what they're doing, but also when he's presented with the opportunity to do a crime that would financially benefit him a decent amount, he he clearly turns it down, even with the threat of uh, Moss going to the police about him. Mm-hmm. Like, he seems to have much more... Like, he seems to be the one person in the play with some morals. Yeah, and I, I do think that's what that comes down to, is he is the only one who does have any morals, and the fact that the business is wrong does not make him think that it's right for him to do something wrong, like, even if it would hurt the business. Yeah. You know, two wrongs not making a right sort of a thing. Also, I think he's probably just not stupid. At least not that stupid. He knows that... The other guy, Moss, would just implicate him if anything went wrong. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about some storytelling stuff with the film. Sure. So we mentioned multiple times already that it's an adaptation from a play, and they did add a couple of elements, but mostly kept it the same. And it's interesting how much of the staging and the direction has made remained the same. It's not filmed as a play on a stage, but it's kind of close in some ways. Yeah, I definitely picked up on that as well, and... In a lot of ways, it reminded me of older movies like Hitchcock films and things like that, where 
you can still see much closer influence of stage productions having been not that far in the past in terms of prevalence and popularity and things like that and being the closest influence for movies but like some of the ways that things are arranged in the rooms the fact that it does sort of move from set piece to set piece um, that being a feature of a theatrical performance anyway where you have these different sections of the stage or set pieces literally that are moved on and off the stage for different parts of a performance lighting to a certain extent um, the use of atmosphere, like where there, the rain is used a lot to sort of force people into enclosed areas and also create a sort of atmosphere in a way that felt very theatrical to me. Yeah, I mean, to talk about the lighting for a moment, with theatre, there's a lot is said with the lighting and just choices of colours that might not be entirely natural. And if you look at the two acts of the play, the color choices in that are interesting because you get a, like the bar is almost entirely lit in red. I feel like mm-hmm. there's a lot of red prominent in that bar. We chose to record today because the rest of the week is supposed to be thunderstorms, but apparently they're here early. If that is left in the recording, we apologize. Yeah, we were just talking about storms and rain used to create a. True. Um, I hope you've appreciated the atmosphere that we've created with this storm. (laughs) But then a lot of the second act of the play feels very washed out. Like, it's the daytime and the lights are back on, but it's a lot of sort of more grey monochromatic type things. I mean, it's the office to some degree, but just the way it's lit and presented. I think what I notice the most about, like, sort of the set design elements and what they're sort of bringing to the entire thing is this sense of dinginess and like Mm -hmm. i think that aids with the sense of how corrupt and gross the whole thing is and just how unclean it literally is that it's contaminating everything about these people's lives and i think that is intentional in terms of like the way that these kinds of ways of thinking and these kinds of structures are infecting all aspects of our lives and making it harder to enjoy or appreciate simple things and human connection by sort of trying to commodify everything and figure out how to make everything profitable for somebody. Yeah. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. No, I mean, I think that the other thing is that they're very claustrophobic. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, I think it's telling that the majority of the Roma and Link conversation takes place in a booth and not at the bar. It's an enclosed space. The um, the office all feels very tight. Um, Williamson and Levine have an entire conversation inside a car. Yeah. And not, not a short conversation. Mm-hmm. And we see a few different conversations that Levine also has in a phone booth. Yeah. Like, there's, yeah, people are constantly being trapped in small quarters. Um, Moss and Aranow are in, like, at a very small table by a bar to get in out of the rain. And they have a long conversation of, like, a cloakroom as well. Yeah. So the, the it opens, in fact, with a conversation in a cloakroom, like, just in out of the rain, I think. People are, no, in a bathroom. It opens with a conversation in a bathroom. It's phone booths and then a phone, bathroom. Yeah. So, yeah, in, from yeah. enclosed space to enclosed right. space. And not just enclosed space to enclosed space, but dingy enclosed space. A car back seat, a public phone booth, public or office restroom and grubby bar etc yeah and i think it's interesting that you get all these like little spaces where people are trapped and then you have williamson's office which is clearly a larger space but it is kept mostly off screen Mm -hmm. 
as like this place that's entirely separate. So everyone in this film is sort of trapped, but yeah, Williamson less so. Mm-hmm. Going back to like the way you can kind of see that this was a play and is still being adapted by the same person who did it as a play, I think another way that it really feels like a play to me is that it is all close conversations of people. And because it's hard to get like a sense of scale and like a landscape and things like that from a play. So you do tend to have a lot more of the action focused on like what people are doing and what they're wearing and what they're saying and things like that. And so that tight focus that we were talking about with the enclosed spaces, I think also is part of why it feels that way, because it's always usually two people talking, um, occasionally more, but it doesn't get too big. There's always like an easy thing to focus on. Um, which makes sense when you're constructing a play because you can't have too much going on in different places. You can't be cutting back and forth a lot in a play. You have a scene where something's going on usually and another scene where something else is going on. If two things are happening at once, they are done in a way that you are able to sort of appreciate both and they're, they're creating something together. And that's a very different process from the way that you get in a lot of modern movies that are not adapted from plays, where you might have a montage cut from the experiences of multiple characters happening at the same time or something like that. Like, we don't have anything like that really happening in this. It is more linear in that way, if that makes sense. Yeah. Did that make sense? Yes. Okay. I guess, like, the composition feels very theat- like a theatrical yeah, performance, think, like a play. Yeah, I think one of the things that really uh, made that clear to me was when you have the conversations between Levine and Williamson, There's they tend to be extended and they tend to be emotional. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you were making it as a straight movie today, you would see a lot of, like, back and forth on their faces. Yes. But they're literally walking up and down an office mm-hmm. for various reasons. And to some extent, it's to show that Williamson is trying to get away from Levine to a degree. Mm-hmm. But if you were made, that is how you would show that in a play. Yes. And not so much in a movie. Very much so. And it's hard to kind of explain, but it's the reason I know like it's very heavily influenced by the way that it must be done as a stage play is there are certain scenes that when I saw them, I can also imagine exactly what they probably did for the stage production. Yeah. Like the phone booth and the car and things like that. Like you have that like car bench seat and like a spotlight, you know, and the same thing with the phone booth and like the rain, like you have the sound and you maybe have some like textured thing behind there so that you can see the rain is happening then you can definitely at least i could visually see like okay that's what they probably did on stage i don't know for sure if it is but all of it feels like you could very easily do it the other way and i do agree with you on like the close-ups you do see that a lot more to get like the emotional nuances you're looking closely at the facial expressions throughout the conversation and that's not what happens in this play it's more about the body language because it's adapted from a play, and that's what the audience can see on a stage. Yeah. So I, I did a study on my map back in my undergrad, and he, he really likes films about, like, con men and stuff, and it's interesting, he did a lot of work with a guy who passed away a couple of years ago called Ricky Jay, who is actually a magician, but was sort of like a consultant for a lot of things, and he shows up in a lot of his films. Um, I know he's in The Spanish Prisoner with Steve Martin, which was a interesting film. Now that I think about it, that has a vaguely not a necessary... I know, I, it is... 
I'm going to have to look into that because there's a racial stereotype in that that I think is also played for the people think this about these people and it's wrong, but it meets their... It's how you know they're assholes kind of thing? Or... Yeah, and it, it puts them at a weakness because they think it's... Mm. It's also been a long time since I've seen that film. So. But he likes to he likes to play with the con men and he likes to be a bit of a con man. So you get this sort of like multi-level multi- misdirection within his works where you'll have the characters lying to each other and sort of tricking each other, whether that be Moss telling Aaron now, oh, it's this much money, and then it works out that, well, actually, you know, Moss is going to get a much bigger cut despite the fact he's not doing any of the work with all the scenes where people are trying to sell things to other people. But also, the majority of the Moss and Aaron Hour plotline, it's partially there to set up their dissatisfaction with the company and the world, but it's also largely as a way to make you think that Moss and Aaron Owl are the ones robbing the office and not Levine. I mean, Levine does it with Moss, but there's a lot of work put into making you think that that's what's going on, and then it's not that. Yeah, I definitely think that was an important part of the storytelling elements, that misdirection, and also I think it's I think it's another way of emphasizing that Aaron Owl is the only good person, because... His other people are trying to take advantage of him, so I think you're supposed to feel a little bit bad for him. That he's sort of the underdog in this group. You know, the most vulnerable, the one that people think they can trick into something. Well, I think that's a fair point. Moss... That that came through. When Moss says that Aranel would have to be the one to rob the place, Aranel asks him why not, and effectively the answer is, well, people would expect me... But they would never expect that you did it, so I've got to go and get an alibi. Right, and it's part of that whole, like, between that and him being the only one to say that what they're doing isn't right to the clients either, it really does emphasize again that this is, like, the only halfway decent guy (laughs) in this entire movie, or play, as the case may be. I think there's also some misdirection with Williamson, where, like, he insists, 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 you know, up and down to Levine and the other guys mm. that he doesn't have any control over who gets what leads, um, and that, you know, he just gives them the ones that Mitch and Murray give him to give to them, and then, of course, at the end, you find out everything. You find out that Levine's the one who stole the leads, you find out that Williamson does have a lot more control than he was letting on, like, he was using... Mitch and Murray as a shield so that they wouldn't be mad at him when they failed. But he actually was having a huge impact on how successful they were, how much of a chance they had. And yeah, that's all part of the same thing, I think, going back to a lot of the things we were already saying about capitalism. Yeah. So to sum up what we've said so far, this is a play that was written in the 1980s and is still 100% relevant today. Fair to say? I think so. Well, that's depressing. Uh... In terms of its message about capitalism, yes. I think that we have gone over the main topics we wanted to cover up to now. Uh, But I think the big question is, what is this work saying about the relationship between capitalism and masculinity? Because you kind of opened with um, the idea that it's treating them as the same thing or as closely intertwined. But I don't think we really got into that. So I'd like to explore it as our big question. Like, what is that relationship as seen through this particular work? Hmm. I think that at a base level, Mehmed is saying that the two are fairly directly intertwined in theory. As I said, like, Roma is very expressly masculine in a lot of ways, and is also presented as being the most successful member of this capitalist enterprise. When we look at someone like Moss, who has not been terribly successful, he's putting in, like, 
we think he has been at first for a long time. And he puts on this very big show of like, he's almost as crass as Roma is without the charm. He gets very loud and angry and uses a lot of vulgar language, especially at Roma, when Roma says, right, but you've not made a sale in a month. And he seems to take that as attack, not just on himself, but as his masculinity and sort of a tie between going from success in capitalism to being a successful masculine figure to being able to provide for yourself and others, which I think then we see very clearly with Levine, the choice to add in a ill relative in a hospital as a way to garner sympathy for him fairly obvious. I think the choice to make it a daughter that he's trying to provide for as a father and is failing to makes it a stronger connection. Where would the characterization of Williamson as effeminate and like attacks against him, implications that he's gay and things uh, fall under that umbrella? Because I think that definitely recurs through the movie if I'm not misremembering. It does come up a couple of times I think. That's probably just not... Do you have an answer to that? The best guess I have, or the best conclusion I think I could draw, is that it's meant as a way to support the salesman's lack of respect for him. I think that's intertwined with him not having the field experience, of like not having worked in the role that he's supposed to be supporting other people in doing, and doesn't really know what they're doing or how to do it. Um, I think it's tied together with competence where there's this idea that he is not a manly man and he's incompetent. Well, I think it probably doesn't extend to of it being the queer coding of villains that was particularly there's popular that, in the mm-hmm. 80s and 90s. I do think there's probably an element of that as well. And I think that probably ties in with the idea of, not something that I prescribe to, but gay men being less than real men, I think is what you were getting at of the him sort of being an imposter within their professional world, mm-hmm. also being an imposter within their masculine, masculine world. world. Sure. And also being um, undeserving of his place above them, I think, too. Of He's got this power. I think they resent him having power over him when they don't respect him. I think that they certainly do. I don't know how much... I, I think that might be a causation issue. Like, I think they attack him with what they see as slurs because they don't respect him being over him and that's what they reach for because they're white men in the 90s. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. And I do think the queer coding of villains is also a big part of it. Which I don't think we've talked about on the podcast before. Not so much, but it is important to acknowledge that wider context of that time that that was a thing that happened a whole lot. I mean, just look at Scar in The Lion King. I guess. But really, that's the first one you go to? Yes. Not Jafar? Also Jafar. Disney was a serious perpetrator of this. Yes, they were. I'm just curious that your first one was like, well, I mean, obviously that queer-coded lion. Yep. But they have people. And Octopus person and Grand Vizier. Cool. So I think that answers the big question. But I think the bigger question is, we've established that all of the cast is pretty unlikable. Which is the most punchable? <laughs> I think Ed Harris's char- characterization of Moss really needs a punch, but I'm pretty sure he'd punch me back. Yes, I think you are correct. I think it I think it has to be Williamson. Williamson? Yeah. And I do want to say, I want you to disentangle Kevin Spacey. I know that's hard, from Williamson. It's very difficult, because yes, Kevin Spacey, also very punchable, but the character Williamson, separate from that. He takes so much glee in punching down. Yeah. And that that's unforgivable to me. Um, no, I agree. I agree. Like he he screws over Levine. He knows Levine is in a hard spot, and he's in a hard spot. Like 
He turns Levine in. Okay, we can say he's doing his civic duty. He takes pleasure in it, that's a problem. And he ended up doing that because of a situation you put him in. Okay, well, I've lost any desire not to punch him. Yeah, well, he he's so petty yes. with how just shitty he is and how he rubs it in Levine's face. Not only that Levine is now in this situation of being a criminal and being arrested and at the mercy of Williamson, who knows that he committed the crime, but also takes so much glee, as you say, in having corrupted his career for years. Yeah. Or, you know, sabotaged, rather. That's the word I was looking for. Having sabotaged his chances of success for who knows how long, just because he didn't like him, because he had the power and Levine didn't. Yeah. So you you agree? Yeah, I think that uh, Moss is a close second. The reason I think that he doesn't get it, though, is because he probably is punched fairly often. Like, just... Yeah, that's like, a man who's been in a bar fight. That, that, yeah. yeah, that's a man who gets into bar fights regularly because he is an asshole and presumably gets drunk and continues to be an asshole, and then people punch him. He's an asshole, but he's honest about it. He is honest about it, yes. Where Williamson pretends he's not and then rubs it in your face when he knows you can't do anything about it. And yeah, that's worse. Yeah. Okay. Any uh, fun facts or tangents you'd like to share? No. So, this isn't a fun fact as such. It's just a little element from the play that I really enjoy. This is a play that has just a ridiculous cast, and like, to some extent, it's like looking back, it's a ridiculous cast, but even at the time, they were big names. The play or the movie? The, the movie, yes, I apologize. There's about eight named characters, I think. Uh, there's a, one of the clients that Levine sees as well. But they're, they're sort of only a few people that have decent-sized scenes. And you've got Alec Baldwin, Al Pacino, Alan Arkin, Ed Harris, Jack Lemmon. Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey, and... Oh, I I always forget the guy who plays James Ling. What's his name? He played Governor Swan in Pirates of the Caribbean. And Jonathan Price. And then you have this one other guy who plays the detective. And he has done a lot of very small bits for a long time. Like, he has over 100 credits on IMDb. I couldn't tell you anything else he's been in just from looking at him. But there's this beautiful moment towards the end of the film where Al Pacino yells at him and then turns around to talk to someone else and ends up standing directly between the camera and the guy playing the detective. And the guy playing the detective very clearly takes half a step to the side to get himself back in shot. And it's just one of my favourite moments in cinema. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see, I had something else up here. The play is notably... Has some similar themes to Death of a Salesman. Oh yeah, definitely. I totally noticed that as well. But is uh, has a certain amount more profanity in it. Mm-hmm. And apparently the cast and crew took to nicknaming it Death of a Fucking Salesman <laughs> on set. <laughs> That's fair. Apparently uh, Alec Baldwin has said that it's his favourite film of his own work. Hmm. Which isn't bad for a seven minute scene. Mm-hmm. Apparently uh, ever since the film was first released it has been used to some degree in training of salesmen on how to sell and how not to sell. Which how I had weird. heard before. The word fuck and its derivatives are said 138 times in the film. Generally though like it seems as though all the actors that took part in it enjoyed the uh, experience of working with so many other great actors. Apparently um, even if they an actor didn't need to be on set for filming one day they'd come and watch the other actors do their parts. Let's see. Feedback, follow-up, late thoughts? Can't think of anything. It's been a long time since we recorded stuff, so we'll see if anything comes up later. Okay. Uh, We should be back in two weeks from now, if not any sooner. 
we'll we won't bother saying what we're going to record for definite because we'll probably change our minds by then you can see any updates that we do have on it on our social media which you can find in the show notes below please rate and review us wherever you listen it helps other people find the show and you can reach us at unramblingspodcast at gmail.com if you have anything you want to say to us directly thank you for listening to unramblings we hope you'll join us next time I think that's all that we wanted to talk about in general. But I think the big question is... Thoughts? You were just hoping that when you got to the end of that sentence, you'd have one. Yep. I was all optimistic that you got one. I didn't need to worry about one. Uh, Nope.